Welcome to the latest episode of Running the Race Podcast, a pastoral perspective on living the Christian life in our day. To find out more about First Baptist Church of Gonzales or for more episodes, check out our website at www.fbcg.net slash rtr. Our speakers today are Dr. Jim Law, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Gonzales, and our Minister to Students, Alex Ray. In this episode, Jim and Alex continue their discussion of the prosperity gospel. First, they talk about the prosperity gospel's view of humanity as little gods. Next, they consider the prosperity gospel's understanding and response to human suffering. This is Alex Ray here with Pastor Jim Law, First Baptist Church of Gonzales, and today we're talking about uh, a continuation of our previous episode with the prosperity gospel. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking at their emphasis or their view of the, uh, God in general, and also uh, their understanding of the problem of suffering. And so, Jim, I, I've really been looking forward to, to this discussion for for quite some time now because. Uh, their their understanding of God is uh, really a lot different than how you and I would would articulate the nature of God and and uh, the character of God. And in particular, what I wanted us to focus on today is the idea that we are little gods. And um and and in my listening to a lot of these prosperity gospel uh, uh, preachers and uh, also word of faith preachers, and we're, we're going to be using those terms in a synonymous yeah. fashion um, over the next few moments. Uh, but I, I don't know if you ever saw the clip from uh, Creflo Dollar, who's, who's based out of Georgia, who uh, some years ago was preaching uh, in a church, and and he he put forth with probably the most explicit version of this little God doctrine. And what he talks about, he says, you know, he's talking to his congregation. And he says that of course they get together. What do they make? They make horses. If 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 uh, dogs get together, when they make dogs, and, and then going back and forth. And so finally, at the end, he says this. He says, if the Godhead says, let us make man in our own image, and there he's re- he's referencing uh, the creation narrative. He said, if the Godhead says, let us make man in our own image. And everything produced after its own kind, then then what do they produce? And the congregation says, gods. Right. And and he says, yeah, gods. And he and he specifies little g gods. And he says this: you're not human. The only human part of you is the flesh uh, that you're wearing. And so that that's probably a really explicit. That, that's not probably. That is a really explicit. Uh, example of the little God's doctrine. Have you, have you seen any other, it's a very troubling example to be sure, but have you, have you seen any, any other example to that? Yeah, I have just, uh, to be honest with you, Alex, I, I have not enjoyed the prep for these podcasts. Um, when I consider the distortion of the gospel and really a transformation of what we understand biblical Christianity to be, um, namely a, a robust faith that um, transformed the Roman world and has brought uh, not only the the words of eternal life uh, to this world, but also the major developments of every every um, aspect of uh, of life peddled really by these prosperity preachers. Um, I, I have not enjoyed the background study and just preparing to have this conversation. <laughs> it, you know, it's just uh, how it's exported to the nations and uh, just a distortion of what the truth is. So when the health and wealth gospels, um, uh, a gospel n- known as word of faith, positive confession, uh, teach that if one has enough faith, then by declaring health and wealth, they can create their own reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something we're talking about. Something different, and um, with regard to healing, with regard to prosperity, and we'll look at that in suffering in just a moment. Um, but you, you mentioned the little gods, um, you know, the the little gods doctrine. 
uh, which teaches that if we're created in God's image, that somehow means we're little gods. And Mm -hmm. they're doing theology by defaulting really to human reasoning rather than working out their theology in the biblical text, which I think is so important. We would affirm, as Wayne Grudem and other sound Christian teachers would affirm, that being in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God of all the things we could say about him. Right. Um, we have a moral aspect, a spiritual aspect, a mental aspect, a relational aspect, which represents God in a way that no other you know, creature uh, does. Um, however, what we have in the Word of Faith movement um, it, are statements like Kenneth Hagin, for instance, uh, you are as much the incarnation of God as Jesus Christ was. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not just a little wrong. That's that's blasphemous. Right. And, and he was a big name uh, and some years ago. He, he died a while back, but he would, he, he'd often called the, the father of the modern Word of Faith movement. And so he was a very influential figure yeah. in this. Right, and uh, influenced in Copeland and, and, mm-hmm. and many others. And, and uh, Hagen went on to say, everyone who has been born again is an, is an in, incarnation, which uh, is way beyond the bounds of uh, you know Christian orthodoxy. C- Kenneth Copeland, I say this with all respect so that um, I don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read the Bible and where he says, I am, I say, yes, I am too. Uh, which again is a, a total misunderstanding of the I am statements in Exodus thir- three fourteen, and then Jesus affirming that in the Gospel of John to establish his deity. Um, so they default to human logic, and I think this really opens up the door to talk about hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I when I think about some of the verses that are used for this, and, we, and we've given examples of of, of of Dollar, of Copeland, of Hagen, um, and they're not the only one uh, to be sure. There, um, there's other televangelists throughout the, throughout the years. Uh, Earl Polk was another one who said basically the same thing as Dollar did uh, back in the 80s and 90s. He was he died of Georgia uh, as well. Uh, but when I think about some of the the scripture that's been used, uh, one of the ones that I often come uh, come into. John ten thirty four, and this is where Jesus quotes uh, Psalm eighty two uh, verse six, where it said, "I said, you are gods." And what's really interesting about this verse for me is a couple of years ago I was doing a writing project on the prosperity gospel, uh, specifically Joel Osteen, and I called. Now you may not know this, but do you know where Joyce Meyer and Benny Hinn and Gloria Copeland and Kenneth Copeland all received PhDs? No. It's in Tampa, Florida, my hometown, <laughs> and it's a school called Life Christian University, and they're based out of North Tampa, a small, small part of North Tampa called Luce, and this is a, uh, I, I called this school, they, they have um, uh, this, this, what they call distinguished alumni, including those names that I just mentioned, and I called this school and, and to get some more information on the school and what they believe and all, that, and all that kind of stuff, and I spoke with a senior faculty member at this school. And I and this this verse came up in our conversation. I remember that this this, this high ranking person referenced this verse, and they and she said to me, she said, um, since Jesus quoted this verse to his Jewish and thus non believing audience, how much more so are we gods, like we today as Christian believers? If Jesus quoted it to them, how much more so yeah. is it is it for us? And it's a very very eye opening conversation. S- so, you know, what we have here in John 10 is uh, Jesus answering um, uh, the, the Jews who were coming after him for, for blasphemy, 
namely that they um, that he was making himself out to be God. And he he references Psalm eighty two, which is kind of a cryptic text. Um, and he says, uh, "Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world that you you, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God." Mm-hmm. And so the original context in in Psalm eighty two, a Psalm of Asaph, is He's addressing uh, earthly kings, or earthly judges, rather, to um, who have been given the important role of adjudicating issues in, in Israel. And um, uh, he references them in, in, as, as gods, small g, not because of their nature, but because of their role. Right. And he, it's an indictment against them because they are not um, uh, doing justice. They're not... Uh, pursuing justice in their role. And we know it's not a, a God nature because they die in the Psalm, Psalm 82, seven, they die. Uh, God's one, one verse later. One verse later. Yeah. And so uh, Jesus is establishing, um, you know, this, this important parallel and he, he refers to it. What do you think he's, what do you think he's thinking about as he's referencing Psalm 82, that we're gods? Yeah. I, I don't, I wonder if he would, if he would take it to that extreme, as far as Osteen goes, I, I do I think some of the other ones certainly I would say as much as they have. And when you think about um, the implications of what they're saying, it, it's really significant. Uh, this, is, this is no small matter uh, because if, if the idea is that we are little gods, then some of the stuff that we talked about in the last episode, for example, the emphasis on health and wealth, it, it comes naturally from that because God, if, if you are a little God, then, well, God's not broke. If you are a little God, well, well God's not sick. And so you shouldn't be either. And then and if we are little gods, of course, that's a, um, a really big if, let, let, let's assume that's the case just for a moment, uh, then we should be able to do what God does. Um, and so if God can speak things into existence, like we see in Scripture, then we should be able to speak things into existence. If our circumstances are not the way that we want them to be, uh, then the implication here of this view is that we should be able to use our words to change the circumstances around us. And so I, I came across um, uh, numerous quotes from, uh, from these people who, who said things to that effect. Uh, Joel Osteen, in, in one of his books, Become a Better You, he says, start boldly declaring God is restoring health unto me. I'm getting better every day in every way. Well, maybe your financial situation doesn't look too good. Start declaring, I am blessed. I am prosperous. I'm the head and not the tail. That's also an allusion to the Old Testament. Uh, I will lend and not borrow. Don't merely use your word to describe your situation. Use your word to change your situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and Creflo Dollar says uh, some stuff of the same, some of the same stuff as well. He had an article that came out that said how to change your life through the power of your words. Just that title alone kind of lets you know where he's going. He tells you that. He said your words are spiritual containers that can produce physical things. That your word, the immaterial, can affect change in the material world. And one way we often hear that today it's this idea of name and claimant, and, yeah. and it rhymes and, it, and it's catchy, but that's exactly what's being said here. Yeah. So you know, to take uh, to take Jesus's statement here in uh, John John ten, when he's when the point of the t- of the text and the reference to Psalm eighty two is is basically this. Jesus was making this point: if human judges, because of their role and work, can be called gods, not by nature but by their role. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, the Son of God, can be called God even more so. 
and um, and and so he's establishing his deity, but he's not establishing our deity, right, or our God nature at all. And so I, I think it comes back to this issue of hermeneutics. And I'd like to just say, Alex, we emphasize so much as pastors that God's people read the Word, listen to the Word, uh, study the Word. Mm-hmm. Memorize the word, meditate upon the word. All, all of these are biblical directives for the believer. We're to treasure God's word in our heart. Uh, and I'm finding more and more uh, the need to challenge God's people in the area of interpretation. How do I interpret the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a – in the Word of Faith movement, in these prosperity preachers and teachers, there is not sound biblical hermeneutics, which is namely establishing – what does the text, what did it mean to the original hearers? Right. In order to build kind of a an, an arc between the ancient text and the modern world. If we don't know what it meant to the original hearers, we're going to be making the Bible say whatever we want it to say, which is exactly what's happening. Right. And it breaks. And so instead of uh, establishing your theology on what the Bible means— um, you know, often we hear people saying, well, well-intentioned, but they, you know, this this verse means to me, well, really, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means. Mm-hmm. And part of understanding that is establishing it in its original context, what did it mean to the original hearers, in order to understand how that carries over into principles and truth for living now. Right. So when you look at John 10, they have totally taken that out of context and even worse, developed a, a system of doctrine that is um, is blasphemous and misleading. Right. And, and, and again, I want to stress here that this doctrine, this idea of little God doctrine, even though it may not come up explicitly at all times when you're listening to... Um, those who promote the prosperity gospel, I, I, I'm a firm believer that this, that this is implicit in everything that they're that they're everything else that they're saying because uh, everything else follows from that. Again, why, you should never be sick, you should never be broke, you should be able to control the world uh, mm-hmm. and, and do things with your word because you are a little god. You know, and just uh, looking and perusing through uh, Joel Osteen's "Your Best Life Now," you know, just looking at the endnotes. Most of the references are Bible references, sure, but you don't see him do any serious type of um, exegesis or background study on what these verses meant, what the context was in their original setting. It really they they seem to be convenient references to what he he really wants to communicate and say. Sure, yeah, and then and that actually transitioned uh, very well into what we um, look at. When uh, we come to the next part that, of our discussion today, mm-hmm. when it comes to the, the answer of suffering or the response to suffering, uh, how, how does the those who promote the prosperity gospel, what response do, do they have to someone who is suffering? And I, I don't I have a hard time seeing how any really anything in the prosperity gospel mentality uh, can really give a, any kind of counsel or solace or comfort to those who are suffering? What what, what can they offer? Because ultimately, when, when, when you listen to those who preach this stuff, the onus is on us to affect change. Right. It, it's on you using your words to change the world around you. It's you using your faith to change, the, your words of faith to change uh, the world around you. I, I remember um, Kenneth Copeland, 
some years ago. He said this. He said, when the report of bad weather comes, don't wait and see what's going to happen. Start speaking to it now. Yeah. Go outside if you can. Shout. Don't just talk to God about it. So don't don't pray. Don't just talk to God about it. Speak to the elements. Say, you don't come to my house. It's not Jesus' place to enforce the laws of the kingdom and, and the earth. It's ours. Right. And yeah. so, there, it's, again, it's all on you. And so what's the implication there? If it doesn't happen— It's your fault. Yeah. So I, I think a major draw of the prosperity theology is that those who believe, uh, those who believe will really get a pass on suffering. They'll get a pass on setbacks. And so uh, Joel Osteen said, what you keep before your eyes will affect you. You will produce what you're continually seeing in your mind. If you develop an image of victory, success, health, abundance, joy, peace, and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. So, I mean, that is tremendously flawed when you begin to look at at um, the Scripture and the promise that believers are given. It's an unpopular promise, isn't it, Alex? Yeah. Let me just mention two. Jesus in, in John six sixteen thirty three, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, Yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is no response in the prosperity uh, message for uh, suffering. There's no theology of suffering. There's no theology of persecution. And so it is just bankrupt on so many fronts and has nothing to say to those who are suffering. Now, you mentioned to me this week an experience you had in attending one of these events. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Benny Hinn was back when I was living in New Orleans still. And uh, Benny Hinn was in town doing an event that lasted all weekend. And, and on one of those nights, he was at a church uh, nearby uh, the campus. And I went, uh, me and uh, my my very loving wife came with me. Uh, we went and... Uh, what, a, what a date. <laughs> it was. Uh, and uh, we went there. And, I, and I'll never forget, there was a number of notable things that happened that night, but probably one of the saddest moments of that night uh, was that there was a boy who had been maybe in, in middle school, uh, perhaps seventh or eighth grade or so, and he had a, a flu mask on. Um, I don't know what the illness was, but he was there with, with what I presume were his parents. And at some point in the service, and it was a couple hours long, it was pretty long, they they had people line up next to the stage if, if you wanted to get Slayed in the Spirit by Henny, and that's a whole other step of conversation, but there's a whole line that developed. Which, since you brought it up, though, Slain in the Spirit, there, you know, what is that? There, right. there's, there's nothing in the in the Bible that would espouse that or co- command us to pursue that. Right, sure. And and so th- there's, there's a whole line of people that's waiting, and they get called one by one, and so Benny would do a couple people, and then he'd wait, and then he'd, he'd go and, and talk, and, and he sang for a little bit and uh, in between, and then he'd go back to the line and call some more people, so on and so forth. And after a long time, that 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 young that young child, young young boy, his parents are moving up closer and closer, and they finally get to the front of the line, and they, they stop doing it, and they get to the end, and then shortly thereafter, the service ends. And I and I just remember thinking like they 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 I don't know where they're from, I don't know if they're from New Orleans, I'm sure they're probably from the city, but they they spent that night waiting for something to happen for the, for their son to get healed, and they get to the front of the line, and Benny says, "We're, we're done." 
And so, w- what kind of message of, of comfort? Oh, there, there there is none to that. And and you, and you mentioned um, the use of scripture and, and all of this, and and I and I think it's important again to to emphasize the need for solid biblical interpretation when it comes to engaging with not just what they're saying, but also uh, also what they're writing as well. And usually those are one and the same. But um, when I when I read uh, Joel Osteen, for example, he's written a number of books. Um, when you read his and, and, and also listen to his sermons, he's an incredibly gifted communicator. Uh, he's very well-spoken. He's very articulate. Uh, just from a, um, a preaching perspective, he rarely ever looks at his notes, which I, which I find pretty impressive. Mm. Uh, but he, when you look at actually what he's saying, he had a, he's very good at incorporating Scripture into what he's saying, but he does exactly what you just mo- mentioned a moment ago, which is that he completely isolates the context and doesn't, and doesn't pay attention to the context much at all. So I just want to give you uh, a quick example. In his, in his book, It's Your Time, he says this, and I'll see if see if maybe you know what verse he's alluding to here. He says, "God is a faithful God. The promises that He put in your heart that you will be healthy, that you're coming out of debt, that your family will be restored, that you'll have a supernatural year. God had every intention of bringing to pass. He is called the author and the finisher of our faith. God will never start something that He cannot finish." And so that's quoting uh, Hebrews chapter 12, where it says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of, of our faith. And so what's interesting here is that when you look at the context of that, uh, if you read the, the rest of that verse, it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, joy that was yeah. set before him endured the cross. The cross. Right. And so it, it's not about uh, fulfilling some sort of our own personal satisfaction or getting a bigger paycheck or fixing whatever problem as significant as they may be. I'm not trying to trivialize any kind of suffering that somebody may be going through, but that's not what the verse means. Well, you know, and for us, Alex, this is not a personal vendetta on our part. Uh, we uh, we abominate this uh, teaching because right. of the damage it does to human souls and the dishonor it is to Christ. Uh, let me just take up the book that uh, Osteen wrote 15 years ago, Your Your Best Life Now. Um. And just plug that into biblical narratives. For example, Stephen in Acts 7. Really? Right. <laughs> you know, where he gives a a historical defense of moments in Israel's history where they hardened their heart and disobeyed God and then is stoned for it. And when he was being stoned, Stephen looked up into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Is this life really his best life now? Right. Uh, When I consider the Apostle Paul, who said, through many sufferings, we enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received from the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I spent in the deep. And on and on he goes. And then he says, in addition to these physical things. I had the daily pressure of on me of, of, of the churches. Is this uh, Paul's best life now? Right. No, he, he, he said, my citizenship's in heaven where I wait a savior. And so um, I, I think that um, the prosperity message fits into the, in well with the American mindset and it sells well, actually, sadly, globally. 
as it's being exported to other nations who think that if I believe hard enough, God's going to make me richer, healthier, prosperous. Right. And and related to this idea of suffering, too, because usually when people are suffering, one of the first things they want to do, uh, hopefully, is that they pray, which is mm-hmm. a good thing. But then even when you read um, their writings on, on prayer, the motives for prayer and the instructions on, why, on how to pray and why to pray are— Form- quite, A formula. Uh, are very much a formula, absolutely, which we, which we discussed in the, in the previous episode as well. Uh, in one of uh, Osteen's books um, called uh, Think Better, Live Better, which again goes back to um, very much tied to this idea of word, word of faith. If you think differently, then you'll speak differently. If you speak differently, then things will, will happen. But in, in his book, uh, Think Better, Live Better, the word prayer appears 65 times. That's a pretty good amount in a pro book. Uh, however, uh, rather than any focus on God in, in this particular book, every use of the word concerns personal prosperity of some sort, specifically on what God can do for us. Uh, just by uh, way of comparison, when you look at the idea um, of how, how often uh, gospel or or sin is mentioned, they're, they're mentioned uh, very, very uh, little uh, in comparison. But uh, in, in this book in particular, he, he actually develops the whole concept of what he calls sick, sick prayers and weak prayers. And he says this, he said, I wonder what would happen if you would dare to pray, God, make me famous. God caused me to stand out so I can make a big difference in this world. God God can make things happen that you could never make happen. And so then and for Osteen, a sick prayer is one that doesn't demand much of God, but rather asks God for help simply to get by. And so weak prayers, by contrast, are those that come from a, what, what he called a slave mentality. And he, and he, and he goes back to the, the Jews being uh, enslaved in Egypt, and he goes on um, about that. You know, I think as a corrective to that, Alex, just quickly, is, um, you know, God's statement to Abraham, Abram, when he called him, Fear not, Abram, Genesis 15, I'm your shield, your reward. For the believer, God is our reward. Right. Not anything that um, we can accumulate in this life, whether it be good health or riches or anything. He's our reward. He's our heritage and inheritance. Yeah, yeah that's right. And that, and that actually reminds me of something uh, ben, Witherington, ben Witherington, who's a New Testament scholar. He said this. He said, if there, if there is to be a prosperity gospel worthy of its name, it should be all about the great blessing of giving and living self-sacrificially and how freeing it is to be trusting God day to day for life and all of its necessities. And so I think as we wrap up, I think as we, we think about why why would God allow the suffering to happen in the life of Christians? And, that, and that's, a, that's a good question to ask. It's a healthy question to ask. And I, and I uh, as you mentioned, you know, time can get tough and we're not guaranteed uh, an easy life. Uh, scripture is pretty explicit about that. Jesus is very clear about that. And for me personally, I've been very helped by something I heard from Tim Keller uh, some years ago where he, he said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but basically that there's a million reasons or more as to why God might allow us to undergo some sort of suffering, big or small. million million reasons. Um, we may not ever know what that reason is, but we do know what one of those reasons is not. And one of the reasons that it's not is that it's not that God doesn't care. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know that because Scripture tells me that while I was an enemy of God, yeah. Christ died for me. And so when I, when I think back to the times I'm, I'm going through hard times or suffering of any kind of sort, no matter what that reason may be, and I may never find out what it is, 
one of the reasons that it's not that God doesn't care. And in that time of suffering, I can remember that while uh, I hated God, He loved me. And while I didn't deserve anything but condemnation, He extended grace to me through 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 the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Running the Race Podcast. We hope you'll join us again in a couple weeks for our next discussion. And don't forget to share the podcast with a friend you think might find it helpful. Until then, you can visit www.fbcg.net for more information about our church and ministry. And again, thanks, God bless, and goodbye for now.